So I've been uh, a college pastor uh, for over 15 years, and I, I've honestly, I've never seen uh, so much anxiety and so much despair on the college campus. I don't think that's a surprise to any of you, even though you haven't been on the college campus for 15 years. Uh, UTC has implemented policies to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but, but no simple reason, I think, will do justice to the complexity of this cultural moment. But I wonder about a number of factors and their impact on your life. Like, forgive, some of you may really like this language, some of you may be like, what the heck, where is this going? Our market economy, uh, which is bent on creating addictive behavior in you. It's bent on it. And then telling you that you have agency and, you, and will and, and you're a person who can decide your own fate and you ought to do it, but we're at the simultaneously making you addicted. We depend financially on the ability to distract you and then we criticize you for not being able to focus. We ask you to not be so dramatic, but we only lift our heads when you act out, from our screens when you act out. We ask you to be free-thinking beings, but stuff you f- so full of freedoms that you're paralyzed. We tell you to care about safety and security more than anything else, and then we encourage you to consider all of the ways in which the world is not safe and secure. We endorse every feeling and every decision, even if it's not good for you. How many friend groups in our culture can be described as a community celebrating the slow disintegration and destruction of each member. But you do you if that's what you want. The cracks are showing everywhere in mental health, in our bodies, in our politics, in our finances, in our habits, in our communities, and we just can't seem to stop. And that's the good news. No, I'm just kidding. It's like super intense. <laughs> so, uh, not, that wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have said it. Uh, <coughs> in the midst of this cultural moment, I'm mindful of the stories that we sell ourselves about why these things are happening. The tales we tell about who we are, the nature of the world, who God is, if there is God, what God wants, what does a good life mean, what does all of this mean? And each week this semester, we're we're demonstrating, we're endeavoring to to demonstrate how the true story of God and you and the entire cosmos is a better story than the one we tell ourselves. You think that God is far from you. God has told us he's closer than you can imagine. You wonder if God makes mistakes. Friends, God only makes good things. You wonder if you're alone in your sin and brokenness. You're not alone. The whole wild sweep of creation is bent by sin. You've suspected that faith in Jesus is just about your soul or your conscience when you're on your pillow at night. The true story is that the whole of history is an exodus, a story of salvation from bondage and redemption into a new way of life. You might think of God's laws as arbitrary rules, which if we follow, he'll love us, and if we don't, he won't. But the true story of the law is that God gives us a better way of life because he loves us. As we continue through the semester, I can't keep summarizing each week or it'll just be the entire sermon series uh, or entire sermon, but um, you can listen to most of these on the podcast. Um, but maybe you've noticed that what we're, we're going chronologically through the story of Scripture, like if you've been coming throughout the weeks this semester, 
discovering how this story is our story and how it's a better one than whatever false narratives we live in. And there's this added challenge of helping you to realize that all of these old stories are good for us to know today. That though I might want to just call this sermon tabernacle, I don't think anybody would come (laughs) or invite their friends. Um, But that's a shame. I want us to understand how, how what God teaches us about who he is, who we are, and about the whole of his creation is a better story that we're invited into. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. So Keely, if you would, I I don't think I told you I'd do this, but you throw up that first image of the mountain. Here we go. (coughs) I want you to imagine a mountain in the wilderness like this. This picture is helpful for you, great. If it looks cheesy or something, it's fine. It took a long time Google imaging because I, I didn't want to find something that looked like a super Christian, like early 20th century painting that would make everybody roll their eyes. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, uh, so I tried to find one that was a little more like modern or something. I don't know. Anyway, hopefully that's helpful. Um, so, so this picture, I, I, I look at this picture. I'm going to tell you a story about this picture, and, and I want you to try to imagine it too so you can populate this picture with other images that this is a story of God's people, the Israelites. After they left Egypt, they left their bondage in Egypt. They were just freed by God from bondage. And like everyone just freed, they were a hot mess. They were free from their Egyptian masters, but they also didn't have the economy and the social structure and the ways of life in Egypt anymore. So they were free, but unformed. Do you see? They were free, but they're just kind of figuring it out. They they just started on this new journey and this new people group. Who are we? Where are we going? Who are we going to be when this is done? What is life going to look like now? This is what happens on the other side of freedom. In case any of you are considering freedom in certain ways, or any of you have just entered into freedom, this is the norm on the other side of freedom. If you've ever been freed from bondage or turned a corner in your life and struck out on a new path, you know this question, what now? You also know those lingering doubts, those lies from the enemy camp. Maybe it was better back then. Weren't we, we weren't that good together, but maybe it's better than being lonely. It's real quiet. What I used to do was destructive, but at least there was some comfort in it. The Israelites, too, were grumbling, wondering what all of this freedom meant. Is freedom worth it after all? Freedom for what? And they found themselves at the base of this mountain. And at the top of the mountain was was the fearful presence of God. A thick cloud covered the top of this mountain, and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder echoed through the cloud. And you can imagine that they turn to one another whispering, I ain't going up there. But at one point, God commands Moses and three men and 70 others to come up. And they go up the side of this mountain, probably somewhere around the base of the clouds, maybe where the gold color starts somewhere in there (coughs) in the picture. They behold the glory of God, and, and the scripture tells us that they eat and drink food together with God. It's one of the main reasons the crux of every community of God's people is food, by the way. 
It's why our staff would love to take you out to eat and, and drink when we spend time together. We meet, the Lord provides, we give thanks. This is a normal rhythm for the people of God. This has been happening since day one. It will happen on into eternity. One of the things we look forward to most is a feast. And after they ate and drank, the Lord called Moses up into the cloud even further by himself. If you were here a couple weeks ago and I was talking about all the ways in which Jesus' life or echo Moses's, we're not done. Remember when Jesus went to meet the Father and his three friends stayed behind to pray for him, Moses left 70 and his three friends and went further in to meet with the Father and asked them to pray for him. Then the Lord, uh, and, and there in that cloud, God gives Moses commands for building uh, this tabernacle, this thing called the tabernacle. And so let's look at it. Exodus 25, uh, second book in your Bible, if you got your Bible or digitally or otherwise, we're going to put it up on screen. Um, Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, just a part of what we read tonight. And, uh, and let them make me a sanctuary. This is God to Moses. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, exactly as I show you, and all its furniture, so shall you make it, or so you shall make it. The first thing I want you to notice in this is that God gives Moses very particular instructions. Apparently there's like a blueprint or a pattern. This comes up again and again in different parts of the Bible, referencing this pattern. <laughs> the whole of the rest of the book of Exodus is detail after detail about this tabernacle and the furniture. From Exodus 25 through 40, probably, has anybody here ever read the last half of Exodus? I saw one half hand raise. I always saw two, three, oh, two, raise, three. Okay, good. So most, four, oh, look at you guys are coming out of the woodworks now. You didn't have to be like scared when I first asked it. Like, I don't know what's gonna, I'm not gonna ask you to repeat it all. Um, uh, but just in case you know, for most of you growing up in the Bible Belt, most people haven't read the Bible. Okay. Um, so you're free, be released uh, from the guilt um, that you feel uh, and maybe read it sometime too, it's kind of fun uh, or crazy and I'm hoping to make a case for the end of Exodus tonight. <laughs> okay, so the whole rest of the book of Exodus from chapters 25 through 40 is detail after detail about this tabernacle and furniture like forks and things like that too, literally. The color of cloth, the length of different sections, the height of walls, the material for a table, the type of stone, certain things are to be built out of on and on. And we read these passages in our modern context, and it can be pretty boring. <clears throat> I might have a moment with the scriptures where I'm reading still in an archaic fashion on paper, uh, and, and I, I, I get to 25, and I turn the page, and I feel like I'm going to be good, keep reading, and eventually I just start skipping because it's detail after detail after detail after detail. Many scholars try to address this, try to help us out, by pointing to the symbolism and meaning under each and every element of these details. How the incense represents God listening to us. How the altar represents God accepting us and so forth. The symbolism, particularly as it's unfolded through the Old Testament, again in Jesus and again in Revelation, is really stunning. Really stunning. Um, I was very nervous that the Momentum Network, who also rents space from this church, we rent space downstairs and they rent space down there too. I was very nervous that some folks in the Momentum Network who, who are, uh, it's a college ministry to college-age moms who can't participate in things like this because they have to pay for babysitting to come to something like this, right? Uh, so if you ever want to serve, by the way, in a local context, a great thing to do is babysit for um, a woman that has a kid in college and can't do things like this or hang out with friends without paying an additional $40 to $60 for babysitting. 
Um, so be, that's a great thing to do. But they're, they're right next to my office, and, um, and I was geeking out in my office over the, these uh, symbol, symbolism stuff. I mean, like, I'm laughing and shouting, and you guys would all think I'm a total nerd. This is so exciting today. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, the symbolism is so stunning. Like, reading the Gospel of John... One way to read the Gospel of John, and a friend and I were exchanging some texts, and he sent me an article about this, and we we're back and forth today, um, is actually a journey into the tabernacle. The whole Gospel of John is this journey into the tabernacle. The water basin and all the water and the cleansing at the beginning of the book of John. The lampstand and all of Jesus' language about light and dark and healing the blind. The table of bread in the tabernacle and Jesus offering himself as food the incense and Jesus' prayer rising to heaven in John 17. We enter the Holy of Holies when Mary sees a tomb with two angels on either side, like the Ark of the Covenant flanked by two cherubim in an empty space in the middle. The whole gospel moves. The whole gospel chronologically moves as this inward journey into the middle of the tabernacle. It's stunning. But for people who aren't familiar with the Israelite story, and are rarely taught to read the Bible for anything other than feeling good, this is a tall order. I'm not trying to shame you as I say that. I, I'm actually trying to shame our institutions that have not taught you well and have dealt you a really crappy deck of car, or hand of cards. When we teach you just to read the Bible to feel good for a moment, we don't understand these things. We think they're above us and beyond us, and we, some Jesus wizard knows those things. When Israelite children would have known some of these things because they were in the stories. And I want to suggest to you, I want to get into all this, this symbolism. I did a little bit of that last time I got to preach, and so I want to kind of make a, another move this week. Um, the symbolism is just thick and buried. God shows off in the ways in which he, he, he riddles every single story with, uh, with, with layer after layer after layer of meaning. It's, it's unreal, but, but I, I want to try to take another move tonight and, and, and suggest another way to read these details. In the ancient Near East, sanctuaries weren't unique. Like when, when the people of God were instructed to build a sanctuary, that would not have surprised any of them that a deity wanted them to build a place to worship him and to, to, well, worship him and offer sacrifices and those kinds of things. That would have been very normal. Tribes and kingdoms built sanctuaries for their gods as a normal practice, but here's a sanctuary that's portable. Yes, God asked his people to build a mobile home, which implicitly teaches them that this isn't permanent. If you read the instructions, you may not be familiar. I don't think anybody, only four or five people read the other half of Exodus. Maybe that same people read the first half. I don't know. But the tabernacle was mobile. It didn't have a foundation. There was even instructions for how to pack it up and carry it around. And when it was being transported, because the people of God were in the wilderness, in the mountain, will you throw that mountain picture up again? It'll make me feel safe and secure. Uh, so this thing could be folded up, and as they moved from the wilderness into the promised land, where, they were, where God intended for them to go and be a light to the nations, there was instructions even for how they were to travel. This sanctuary, which is really strange, the other sanctuaries were built as permanent structures in tribal lands. This sanctuary also didn't have an idol in the middle of it. Temples all over the ancient Near East had one thing in the middle, which you would expect, even though many of you haven't seen it. I don't know if anybody's ever been to uh, non-Abrahamic non, um, tradition places of worship. But like I, I've been, I've spent some time in, uh, the, the best place I can think of is Thailand. I spent a while in Thailand. Um, and there's lots of temples around there. And there's always idols in the very middle of it. Always. In the ancient Near East, every temple had an idol 
right in the middle of it, a carving or a statue representing their God, and to that idol, the tribes would give offerings and gifts and even sacrifices, sometimes even sacrificing people, which the God of the Israelites found abhorrent. And do you know that's precisely the practice that he wanted gone from the land? In this mobile home, this portable temple we call a tabernacle, there's no idol. Some of you might recall the second commandment. Don't make any graven images. Israelites were strange. In the middle of their place of worship wasn't an image, wasn't a carving, wasn't a picture. In the middle of their sacred space for their God was just space that they were not allowed to fill with anything. That space was for their God to fill as their God saw fit. Moses would say, who are you again? And God would say, I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. This place was, of worship was super weird. They set aside space for God, but they weren't allowed to control it. I submit to you that that's a lot of what prayer is like. It's a lot of what reading scripture is like. That's a lot of even what I think coming together in worship is like still. But the Israelites didn't have to guess about a single aspect of the sanctuary because every single freaking detail was provided by God. And all the details were a gift. So far from being boring to them, these details would have been exceedingly interesting and gracious. To explain a brief story, when I proposed to my bride, I was so scared. I, I wanted to marry this girl, Anna, so much. And I'd, I'd never been more nervous in my life. I was more nervous proposing to her than I was on my wedding day. My wedding day was really weird too, but I, was, I, I knew she wanted to marry me at that point. Uh, I, I mean, and she was like, people had seen her around that day, so I assumed we were good. Um, but <laughs> when I had to propose to her, I was terrified. And I actually tried to propose to her on a Saturday, um, and I was like pacing around for two hours on my flip phone, uh, wait, trying to call her, trying to figure out what to say, and, and I was sweating in my apartment, and Dwight, who was awesome, uh, was like, dude, just call her and ask her, man. And I was like panicking for two hours, I'm pacing back and forth, back and forth, and I call her, I'm like, hey, what's up, you know, and... Um, and, and I was trying to think, like, what is the one thing I could ask her to do that she was definitely going to want to do? And I was like, paint pottery, which wasn't my engagement plan. I just needed some reason for her to hang out with me. And I was like, dude, she can't turn down painting pottery. I never want to paint pottery. And she's totally going to think that's rad that I want to do that on a Saturday afternoon. So I call her up. I'm like, hey, do you want to paint pottery? And, uh, or something. I don't remember exactly what I said. And she was like, nah, I just had lunch. And I had no clue what to do. Uh, I said, okay, cool. Click, threw my phone across the room, cussing. I was, I was a Christian, and I confessed and things like that. Um, but I was cussing. I was so mad. She didn't want to go, so I didn't want to talk to her. You know, we didn't hang out that night. Uh, she had no idea why, you know. And, and so the following Thursday is the next opportunity that I could find to do this. Um, and I had to, like, get her boss to, like, know that I was going to get her from work and whatever. Okay, anyway, everything was going to plan. I was down on my knees. She's holding a glass of wine that I had given her. I had just washed her feet on the side of this mountain. I'm reading to her this journal entry about my love for her. And she goes, wait, are you proposing to me right now? 
And I said, are you serious? And she goes, oh, no, 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 continue, continue. Um, <laughs> no tears, none of this stuff, you know, like, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, what is the deal? And, and I, was, I was proposing to this incredible woman. I was terrified because, A, I had no clue what she was going to say. I really, I mean, I thought, I thought she'd say yes, but I'm, I'm, I, I had had, uh, I had had some bad experiences uh, of my own doing many times, uh, many times, and, um, and, and I had, I had this newfound kind of wisdom about this relationship where I was like, look, I, I'm going to put myself on the line before I ask this woman to commit anything to me. And, and so we didn't talk about like, and, and this is not legalism for any of you. This is what it meant for me to follow Jesus in this relationship. There's principles here I think you can learn from. But like with this woman, I was like, I want to be careful to say I love you. I want to be careful about what we do physically. I don't want her imagining being married to me and me nursing that imagination unless I had risked and I was willing to commit to her. But many of us, and this is an aside, um, and ladies, I don't know how you do it. I can speak to the men more. I'm one of you. Uh, but there's a way in which for many of us men, we look for ways to sort of get all of the cards in our favor before we make a decision because we're terrified of risk. We're terrified of it. And so I, I don't, and, and so it was this discipline for me to be like, I do, she doesn't know how many kids I want to have, or even if I really do. She doesn't want to know where I want to live in the long term. She doesn't, none of these things, you know. A couple of days before we were going through Walmart shopping, which we also rarely did, because I didn't want us to like blend finances too much or anything. We were just dating. And, uh, which I think is so stupid if you're just dating to do that. Um, and that's free advice. Um, and she's like, we're like, I'm playing out some idea. I know I'm trying to propose to her. This is between that Saturday and that Thursday, and I'm probably being vindictive. So you can balance my healthy relational habits with my unhealthy ones. Um, and, and so we're, we're I'm walking through this thing, and I'm like, we're talking about the future. And I forget exactly what the context was, but I said something like, I mean, you know, sometime in the next few years, you know, I mean, assuming we get married, if we get married. And she goes, a few years? You know, we've been dating for a while. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know when we're going to get married, and, and I, don't, I don't know what that's like. Look, look, as soon as I know, I promise I'll propose to you if that's a thing. And, and she was like, a few years, though. And I was like, well, okay, like, I don't see any reason why we would still be together if I didn't propose to you for more than, like, a year and a half or so. And she was like, a year and a half? And I was like, I just cut it in half. <laughs> like, chill out, you know. I'm totally, I know I want to propose to her. And I'm, I'm just trying to keep this boundary, and I'm also being a little vindictive. Um, but as soon as we propose, and this is before the cultural moment of today, nobody's around to take pictures. That wasn't a thing. Thank God for us. I didn't want pictures, especially that moment where I was like, wait, really? You know, uh, there was no hand over the mouth. There was no tears. Um, but we spent the next two hours just driving around, looking at homes, talking about what kinds of kids we might want to have together. Um, and nobody knew we were engaged. And it was such a lovely secret for a few hours. It was such a lovely secret. But I, that day was so terrifying for me. I didn't know if she wanted, how she, I didn't know how she wanted me to propose. I still have no idea what kind of gifts she likes. We've been married 12 years. I have no idea what I'm going to get her for Christmas. None. Or for her birthday. None. Every year I think I've ruined it because I got her the best thing I could think of. And, and, I, and, and proposal was the same thing. I, I didn't know if she wanted to marry a pastor. She was terrified of that. The fact that I'm technically a priest in the Anglican church, which is just another word for pastor, but that was super exciting for her because she was like, well, nobody knows what to do with a priest's wife. And I was like, true, I don't either. So that's fine. Um, but like, I didn't know if she really wanted me, y'all. It was terrifying. 
Okay, step it back just a minute, but, but have you ever felt the fear of wanting to please someone, but not knowing if they would like the gift? God does not want this for his people with him. He does not set us up in that kind of relationship and that kind of dynamic. The Israelites did not have to wonder if God would be pleased. They didn't have to guess at what this all-powerful God would like. It wasn't a game that they were being tested in. He wanted to dwell with them, and so he told them what to do. And if you read the story, he gave them all the materials to do it and even empowered very specific people with the gifts to accomplish the building of things. Which makes in this story all the details tiny gifts of grace. Among all the kingdoms of the ancient Near East, every single one of these tribes was guessing at what their gods required. When sickness overcame their loved ones, when droughts and and famines hit the land, when lightning flashed in the sky, were the gods angry? Was our sacrifice not good enough? Does does our God or are the gods not like what we built them and did for them? Did we do something wrong? Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. But not for Israel. God does not want them to have to guess. He wants to heal their anxiety and give them assurance. And the same is true for you, friends. I think of how many of us, like the ancient Near Eastern tribes, are wondering what God requires. What it would mean to please Him. What it would, like to, for, what it would look like for Him to look favorably on us. Keely, will you throw, throw the quote up from Chesterton? One of my heroes said it this way. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that many of us live as if God has not acted in history. We act like we have no clue what to do or how to live if we want to follow our king. But God has not been silent He has given us more than enough to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been given. And if you're wondering what it means to live a life pleasing to God, listen to him, trust him, and obey him. Life in Christ has not been tried and found wanting, though you may have found it difficult and left it untried. If you want to talk more about what it looks like to follow Jesus, like maybe you really have not heard some of these things that God has been telling his church for the ages. If you want to hear more about how his grace is, is laying out a new way of life for us in the spirit, please come just talk to me or one of our leaders. I would, I would love to talk to you about that. You, you do not have to wonder what God wants for you. For those of us who get lost in the details and, and when we read through the scriptures or hear the stories of the specifics and we think that God is some arbitrary perfectionist who's never pleased, hear the better story. God gives grace and every detail he gives is for our peace and for our flourishing. God has not been silent. And he wants to heal our anxiety with his gracious gifts. But there is perhaps an even greater thing happening in this story. Do you remember from our text, in verse 8, why why God wants his people to build him a sanctuary? Why does God want this? It's because he wants to dwell with them. He wants to be with them. No ulterior motive. He just wants to be with them. It's a driving motif of the entire Bible. It's a driving motif of all of history. God with us. Emmanuel. That's what it means. 
And it strikes me that this image of the cloud on top of the mountain, if you could put this image up, we're going to juxtapose the two images back to back in just a minute, that first image, this is great. Um, It strikes me, this image of the cloud on top of the mountain and the people down below, it's a good metaphor for many of our lives. We are a motley crew wandering around a kind of wilderness waiting to be formed. And on the college campus, literally, people outside of these walls are, are hoping that you'll come out formed into something. Many of you feel pressure. Like you have to be by the time you graduate. Many of you feel that. Wondering if, many of us wonder, especially if you've made certain decisions throughout your time in college, if our old life was better but not wanting to go back. Many of us are hungry and tired of living what feels like day to day. Just like the Israelites. Having this sense that God wants us to ascend some kind of mountain to be with him. But we're afraid to climb. We're afraid to draw close. Maybe because, maybe we're afraid because we think we won't make it. Maybe because it's a lot of work or a lot of change. Maybe because we don't know if we really even want to meet God face to face. Deeper, maybe because we are worried he won't want us. God does, in fact, want you to ascend the mountain, but he doesn't want you to do it alone. The true story of God and you and the cosmos is that God comes down and he brings you and the whole of creation up with him. God comes down. So God gives instructions on the mountain and the tabernacle is built on the ground. God creates from above the heavens but walks in the garden. I'm jumping ahead, but the Bible doesn't ultimately, this is going to make some of you nervous because you haven't read the Bible. Um, I'm jumping ahead, but the Bible doesn't ultimately tell us a story of of us going to heaven. It tells the story of heaven coming to earth. God comes down. Read the last two chapters of the Bible. Small homework. Will you just go to the next image for me, Keely? I don't know if you can see, but this image down here at the bottom is a tabernacle. It's a, it's a uh, zoomed out image of the tabernacle. Look at this image. Do you see compared to the other image that the cloud of smoke and fire the glory that was on the mountain has come to rest on the camp below. And it's a little bit more humble down there, isn't it? If you're familiar with the history of the church, or maybe you've read the book of Acts, do you see what a bunch of descendants of the Israelites having this image in their histories, what they would have thought in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down and little tongues of fire are resting on the heads of all who are in Christ? God coming down? to dwell with his people, a new kind of tabernacle, the church, a place where God dwells with his people, but I'm skipping ahead. Let's look at uh, John's gospel, chapter one, verse 14. I think this is the last verse I'll throw at you, I promise, okay? Um, John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you don't know, the word is, is John's sort of robust word. He's throwing in, a, a, no pun intended, he's throwing in um, a, a sort of Greek ideas with Hebrew ideas because it's a uh, is a Jewish Messiah uh, in, the, in, in a story told in the midst of a Greek culture. Okay, um, the word is, is Jesus became flesh, God became man and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory which for an Israelite is always an Exodus word. They wanted to see God's glory manifested in the tabernacle. Um, they've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Oh, we need grace and truth. Some of you may know this. That word dwelt, which is a good, it's a, good, it's a fine translation, but the word is actually tabernacle. 
The Greek word is actually tabernacle. Okay, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us is a correct way to translate that, but because we don't know our histories very well, it's a rough word, and so the, the translators are going, well, what does tabernacle mean? Well, God wanted a tabernacle built. The word tabernacle in Hebrew actually means to abide, to abide, and God said he wanted this built so he could dwell with his people, and so when Jesus tabernacles, let's just help our English readers out a little bit because they don't read the Bible. Let's help them out, and let's translate this word as dwelt, because that's really what this means, is God wants to dwell with his people. When God became flesh, he did it to dwell with us. But that, the word's tabernacle, and for anybody in the original hearing of this, or who reads it in, 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 as the word tabernacle, that hyperlinks back to the story in Exodus that we're reading today. And though the word dwell is fine, we miss the illusion and the symbolism, the summary sweep of all of God's history in Jesus here in this moment. Why did God want a tabernacle to dwell with his people? Why did God come to us in Jesus? I submit to you that it's more than to just take care of your sin. It's not less. It is a lot more. Why did Jesus come to tabernacle with us? Because God actually wants to be with us. In case you've never heard this, friend, God actually wants to be with you. He's been at it for millennia. He's relentless, and he wants to be with you. He's not hiding in the bushes. We do that in our shame. He's not silent. We do that in our fear. He's not passive though we are in our cowardice. God is not made in our image. We're made in his. God comes down. In the garden, at the tower, in the wandering, in the judges, in the tabernacle, in the prophets, in the kings, in Jesus, in the church, through the word proclaimed tonight, in the sacrament of communion, in his people together, God is with us. He always finds a way. But how many of us think that God is somewhere other than we are? I love when Christians say go with God rather than go to God. How many of us think that God is somewhere other than we are, that we have to go to him, that in our battles against pornography or pride or gossip or vanity or bitterness or anxiety, that these are mountains that we need to climb alone. There is a true and better story which stands against this, and it's that God comes down and brings us up with him to dwell with us and to be with us and to raise us up into the heavenly places with him and then descend again upon a new earth. How would your life be different if you began to believe that you didn't need to go to God? That if you were to turn around in some area of your life how would your life be different if, if when you turned around you were already there rather than that you had to walk miles and miles back through the mess? What if you didn't need to go to God but that he was already with you right now? And if you didn't need to wait for any further instructions in life, what if God by grace has already given you all that you need to live a life pleasing to him? If that were true, if God was with you and you were not, you didn't need to wait for further instructions, what might God be calling you to do? 
Let's take a moment of silence for the next minute and reflect and respond to that and to whatever the Spirit of God might be doing in our lives right now. And then I'll close us in prayer.